Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, it's my turn again, huh? (laughs) Well, happy to take turns and uh, happy to have you along for the ride on this Tuesday edition of Lifeline. Boy, lots of going on in the world of news. Certainly, we're heading uh, straight into the election cycle. Don't normally talk about people already voting this early. What, 25 days out for the election? 20, no, I'm sorry, almost 11 million votes have already been cast. Absolutely remarkable. And I think it is demonstrative of the notion that there is so much at stake in this election. And I'm going to say something that I know longtime listeners are going to say, oh boy, here he goes again. I've heard that song before, that this is the most important, perhaps pivotal election of our lifetime. And this isn't to suggest the previous times that I said it, I was necessarily stretching the truth, but more so perhaps because each subsequent election, the stakes seem to be growing. So I think it's fair to say when we look at all that's at stake here in relationship to where our nation is, where it's headed, this is, to be sure, certainly in my own lifetime, the most pivotal and critical presidential election yet. That said, amongst all of the items that are sort of front and center um, is the a nomination for the United States Supreme Court, which is technically a function of not what the next president will deal with, but the current president. And uh, this is not unusual. Presidents uh, typically have a shot or two, some multiple opportunities at appointments to the highest court in the land. The record holder goes without saying, George Washington. He had 14 nominations, 11 confirmed. One that surprised me, and then I remembered in the context of the number of years that he was in office, um, 12 years, three, sorry, four, four terms, not completing, of course, the fourth one. That was FDR, who had a record nine appointments to the high court. And of course, if he got in his way in 1935-36, it would have even been more than that. Andrew Jackson had five, William Taft, six. Of recent years in memory, Richard Nixon with four, Ronald Reagan with four. Then we slipped into the twos, Bush 41, Clinton, Bush 43, Obama each had two selections to the high court, and now obviously President Trump with three. The stakes are extremely high in this particular nomination. So let's get some insights as to what's transpiring here and um, how we can expect this to roll along just three weeks shy 
of the general election. Joining me now with some insights is the host of the Bob Zadek Show, heard every Sunday at 8 a.m. here locally in the San Francisco Bay Area on 860 a.m. The Answer. And you can get more details as well as information concerning podcast resources, Bob's latest books, too, online at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K dot com. Robert, as always, great to have you on the program. Thanks again for having me, Craig. Appreciate it. As we say, there's a lot at stake in this election, and certainly a lot at stake in this nomination. There's talk about how will it potentially impact the mixture of the court when it comes to decisions on issues such as abortion, gun rights, the Affordable Care Act, on and on the list goes. Uh, the nominee so far um, certainly seems to have held her ground. And if anything, I, at least in my viewing of the questioning between yesterday and today, seems to be at least on the surface that um, uh, that Justice Barrett has no real agenda other than to say there's no agenda. Do you think that's accurate? Well, agenda. Um, I would disagree without seeming to using a play on words. She has an agenda. Her agenda is to maintain the integrity of the Constitution, to decide cases on the law, not on these, how sympathetic the litigants are. So I think she has a profound agenda, but it is an agenda that we wish every judge or justice in the case of the Supreme Court would have. I hope she does have an agenda, and I, and I know she does, and that's what it is. And I profoundly respect her for having that if you will, agenda. Now, at 48 years old, if indeed confirmed to the high court, she could see a potentially significant tenure on the court. If she stays virtually for lifetime, as most seemingly in recent years do, uh, she could see 40, 40 plus years on the high court and certainly leave a significant indelible mark, as some of her certain predecessors would have, uh, to be sure, down through the years. And and, and maybe in part, that's some of the concern here, um, that as someone who could sit on the high court for decades to come, once confirmed, uh, would have the opportunity to perhaps um, steer some of the decisions the high court makes in in certainly a more neutral direction. By neutral, I mean less politicized, less legislation from the bench, as is often levied at the court, and uh, more based on well, quite frankly, what else do we call it, but sort of a, a rational a basis standard for jurisprudence, which I, I think would be a welcome relief given some of the other appointees down through uh, recent memory and what some would consider to be a, more of a basis that the Constitution is a living, breathing thing, and therefore we have to kind of decide based on not what the Founding Fathers meant or intended, but rather what seems to be more practical or, in some cases, politically expedient for for the now. You, you said a whole lot there, Craig, as you often do. You pack a lot into a single sentence or paragraph. Uh, I, I, I want to comment uh, and join you in saying, given her age, she could leave her mark. I think she will leave her mark, not by her age, not by the number of cases she decides, not by the number of cases she is in the majority or in the dissent. She will leave her mark by the intellect, 
and the integrity of her decisions. You don't have to... Now, we hope she leaves a mark also for her tenure, but I assure you, she will leave a mark that future generations will be profoundly grateful for only in her preservation of the rule of law. So yes, she will leave her mark, hopefully for both longevity and wisdom. How do you think she's going to fare through the questioning? I mean, so far the last couple of days, uh, she certainly has held her own, and the, the tone and tenor of the discussion and questioning has decidedly taken on a certainly a different flavor from that of what we were um, exposed to during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. Uh, this is feeling more like the Neil Gorsuch nomination hearings as opposed to Kavanaugh. And I think at the end of the day, perhaps that's a good thing. I don't think the question is how she will fare. I think it is how the questioners will fare. I have no doubt she will fare just fine because she is simply answering the questions. You cannot fare badly by answering the questions. Uh, so there's no question she will fare well. I dare say many of the senators will not fare nearly as well. They will be shown as either ignorant of the Constitution or petty or so profoundly political. That, of course, is not a headline because their very job is political. But... Uh, if you are good, the, the fact that you are behaving in a purely political way will not be so apparent. In the case of the, uh, the many of the senators who are questioners, I don't think they're going to fare very well at all. And you, you touch on an important point, because in, in watching over the last couple of days, and this certainly varies from uh, Senate member to Senate member, largely in some respects dependent upon whether or not the senator in question happens to coincidentally be up for re-election this year, some of the dialogue seems to feel more like campaign debate as opposed to thorough review of Barrett's qualifications for this lifetime appointment. Would you agree? I would agree, Craig, and I would summarize it by saying uh, the audience, the us, the voters are misled by what these events are called. They are described as hearings. Great, they are not hearings. They are performances. Mm. Uh, a hearing does not need a TV camera. A hearing, which is designed to get information, can be done in private without the attention of the media, and senators go about collecting information so they can make a decision. These are performances, these are rehearsed, these are scripted. Uh, Craig, uh, I will never grace them by calling them hearings. They are not at all hearings. And of course, at the end of the day, and we'll drill down into this a bit deeper when we come back after the timeout, at the end of the day, this really ought to be less of the political grandstanding, as you're suggesting, and the the um, sort of the stage show, so to speak, and performing for an audience of 350 million, as opposed to getting down to the key issues at hand here, and that is the individual's experience, the individual's qualifications, and a sense of just how capable or incapable they may or may not be 
uh, for the position. And I always find it curious when there's a lot of time spent investigating how a particular potential justice would vote on an imaginary case, the facts of which are not known because the case has not yet come before the high court. It's just pure speculation as to when it will, and then, of course, none of the details that are so critically necessary for a justice to hear and then render a decision based on the constitutionality of a law or the lack of same, and yet we seemingly want to put forward a bit of a a litmus test based on political ideas or agenda as opposed to the pure qualifications or lack thereof for the individual in question. And while some see that as an important exercise in attempting to really gain thorough knowledge and understanding of the candidate, others perhaps see through a bit of that ruse to understand that it's more political grandstanding than anything else, and and perhaps even at certain levels, an attempt to try and shape the court not in terms of who brings the best qualifications for reliance upon the the original intent of the Founding Fathers, but instead who might help further along what agenda. With us today is best-selling author, syndicated talk show host, and attorney himself, Bob Zadek. Bob, of course, is the host of the wildly popular Bob Zadak Show, syndicated across the country, heard regionally here in the San Francisco Bay Area on 860 AM, The Answer. That's every Sunday morning at 8 o'clock. It's one of the tune-in destination programs, a great way to start the day and the new week with Bob, an opportunity to hear from his guests on a number of compelling topics that relate to -to day-to-day life. And, of course, it's a no-spin zone, so he dives right in to the issues and gets right to the heart of the matter. It is indeed compelling talk conversation and certainly far more entertaining than many of the so-called talking heads on Sunday morning television. Check him out Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock on 860 AM, The Answer, The Bob Zadek Show. Information online at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. We'll take a brief time out. When we come back, we'll get into some of the issues of ideology that sort of rear their ugly head during any of these um, SCOTUS hearings. And we'll do that right after we do this, a look at traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back in our conversation tonight with talk show host Bob Zadek. You can catch his show Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. here in the San Francisco Bay Area. He's syndicated, but locally you can catch him at 8.60 a.m. The answer, again, that's Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. Details on the web at bobzadek.com. Lots of great resources there in addition to lists of past guests, podcasts, and, of course, Bob's books as well. We're talking about the um, Supreme Court hearings that are underway right now. And um, it, it is very fascinating to me. And, of course, this comes around, Robert, every time that there is a, an opening for the U.S. Supreme Court, that while the hearings ostensibly uh, should be there to uh, judge the qualifications, the background, the, the, um, the abilities that are necessary for a position like this. And yet, so often, senators want to dive very heavily into, um, how should I phrase this? They, they want to dive into 
ideological issues over made-up cases that don't yet exactly exist before the court and somehow get a person to speculate on a case that doesn't exist, put forward an opinion, and then decide whether or not they're qualified for the highest court in the land based on that opinion. And I've never quite understood that. Uh, I mean, talk about completely unrealistic, and yet I would speculate that, as we've heard that the last couple of days, that that will be once again the theme that is running as a strong current through the entirety of these hearings. What, in your opinion, is problematic about that approach? Well, of course it's problematic, because how, let's take, of course, the 800-pound gorilla in the room, uh, a topic that's of interest to your audience, is the topic of abortion. Now, how one, now, the, the Supreme Court case that gets all of the attention is, of course, Roe versus Wade. And Roe, and so people are, often discuss how you feel about Roe versus Wade. Now, for you and I, Craig, to sit around uh, having a beer and talk about how we feel about Roe versus Wade is kind of silly, because it's asking whether or not a certain case is has reached the right decision according to the Constitution, not the right decision according to morality, not the right decision based upon whether abortion is something that is a positive or negative act. It's based upon the application of a certain event to the Constitution or vice versa. So how one feels about abortion has little or nothing to how one feels about the case. The case is of questionable constitutionality. By that I mean that honest, well-meaning, intelligent, constitutional scholars can reach different conclusions on whether the court properly applied the Constitution to the facts before it in Roe versus Wade. That is a different conversation about how whether one feels that abortion should be limited, modified, regulated, or criminalized as a matter for society. They are two very different questions. Uh, and therefore, uh, a decision about the practice of abortion is totally different than a decision about an opinion about a certain case, which is decided on technical constitutional grounds. So no one should care about how one feels about the act of abortion. It's only a question of whether the case was properly decided. To give another even easier example, how does one feel about murder? Well, everybody's opposed to murder. Well, what if the party doing the killing was acting in self-defense. Well, then the killer doesn't go to jail. And no one can discuss whether the killer killed somebody. It's a question is whether the law says the act is not in dispute, whether that act is criminal or not. Two totally different questions. So 
In large part, the only way that a question of that sort uh, could bring any substantive meaning is if there was an example case that may be potentially headed toward the court that could then give us a glimpse into the understanding that the individual, in this case uh, Mrs. Barrett, has in relationship to constitutional law and the framework then that that establishes in which a decision will be rendered based on the constitutionality or lack thereof of a particular law or rule. So that that makes uh, that makes perfect sense. Uh, in in relationship to the other questions, in so far as her religious background and whether or not that's a qualifying point or a disqualifying point, what is your opinion when certain aspects of the questioning becomes so? so terribly intimate and personal. I mean, I I guess it would be nice to know whether or not if you're going before a judge, if he's been a golfing partner of your father and whether or not that might sway him in your favor and give you a sense of leniency. But in, in retrospect to both the Kavanaugh hearings and what we may see here over the coming days and weeks, as there's drilling down into very personal um Beliefs that may or may not have any impact whatsoever. I I get the sense that they they want to somehow either have a person pass a belief litmus test or check the entirety of their beliefs at the door. Neither of which do I think is very practical. The constant uh, as to religion, the Constitution expressly speaks to that issue and says that there cannot be, this is in the Constitution, the highest law of the land, there cannot be a religious test for any public office. So that cannot ever be a disqualifier or a reason to award somebody a position. As to whether it's appropriate questioning, that's a different issue. Now, the the senator, the questioner, is allowed to ask the question, but the point is whether as a political matter, whether that's the right thing to do. And if people feel that's wrong, the people have a remedy at the ballot box. As to what my opinion is, you asked it of me, of course they should not ask about religious beliefs. They are only pandering to somebody, and they are clearly conducting what is supposed to be a hearing. Therefore, the hearing is supposed to elicit information to help them decide. When they ask a question, when they know the answer in advance, they clearly can't be trying to get information to help them decide. Therefore, they are, as I said at the opening of our show, they are simply performing for a constituency and earning points within the political establishment, their party, by asking the question. So that is offensive to me because Uh, Craig, it's like when you ask somebody a question and you know the answer, then you have another motive other than to learn the answer, which you already know. Yeah, and clearly in this case, it's less about asking a question to get information. It's more asking a question to get somebody's goat. Now, that said, final question for you tonight, Robert. Um, There's been a lot of this debate as to whether or not it's appropriate this close to the election to be engaging in these hearings. Uh, You know, there's arguments in both directions based on history. At the end of the day, uh, there's nothing in the Constitution that somehow forbids uh, the hearing or the appointment of a replacement justice. And in fact, there's plenty of history to suggest that up to the 11th hour in in presidential uh, tenures, this 
this has been done. So I, I think that's uh, that's an interesting debate from a political standpoint, uh, but from a constitutional standpoint, it's very much a moot point. What, however, might be an interesting dynamic here, and that is this, that right now the Republicans enjoy a, a 53 to 45 um, majority over Democrats, though the two independents uh, both caucus with the Democrats, so we would suggest perhaps that they may lean in that direction. One would think that 53 to 47 is is a healthy spread. That said, we mentioned earlier, it's an election year. Might somebody decide to, at the last minute, jump ship? Could there be certain senators like Susan Collins of Maine or Elisa Murkowski of Alaska that uh, might at the last minute decide, nope, they, they don't want to, uh, uh, to vote with the majority? That being the case, if it becomes a tie, typically the vice president is the tiebreaker. Would that have any anything from a constitutional uh, standpoint uh, coming into play here, given the fact that the tiebreaker is the vice president who was running for re-election? Anything at all in that? It would not. Uh, it's answered. It's only a political issue, not a constitutional issue. Everything that has happened has happened uh, well within the confines of the Constitution, as will be the court packing, if the Democrats choose to do so, as many people, including myself, fear they will. Robert Zadek, always great to visit with you. Bob Zadek Show, Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock on 860 AM, The Answer. He dives deep into these issues and many more, so we invite you to check it out. Information, again, available on the web at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K dot com. 533, let's swing over to the KFAX Traffic Center once again, get you another update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Thank you, kind sir. Welcome back. 537 here on the Tuesday edition of Lifeline. You may recall the conversations that we had, oh my goodness, going back over years with our good friend Vern Tyler from Hosanna Homes, who for uh, the bulk of 25, 30 years of his uh, ministries. Uh, outreach here in the San Francisco Bay Area equipped and trained foster parents to uh, to take children in and to help kids that find themselves in uh, dire circumstances and and oftentimes with no place to go and of course facing the possibility of being put into a orphanage or a group home which is never ideal and so the focus for the longest time was train Christian parents who can then open their hearts and their homes to help kids in trouble. One of the um, stumbling blocks along the way included changes in California law that simply said, you can do all of that, but you can't encourage the kids to go to church. You can't set any sort of moral baseline for them that has anything to do with your own personal faith. You just can't do it. Well, uh, clearly a Christian family who wants to pass those values on, a child who needs that kind of stability, and then to be told legally it can't be done, creates a insurmountable challenge. Well, 
That mentality is not over with yet. Let's get an update from Brad Dacus, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, with a look at the case of Fulton versus the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. Counselor, welcome. Tell us what's going on. Oh, you bet. Uh, the city of brotherly love is ordering, uh, they passed actually an, an ordinance that uh, requires that, uh, you know, all uh, foster home agencies, including private religious ones, um, you know, that they not uh, uh, in any way just discriminate in terms of uh, who they put their, their children with. Do they, they line up children in terms of, of homes? So uh, based upon uh, sexuality or uh, sexual uh, lifestyles, including gay parents, and, of course, the Christian foster care agency uh, that uh, is, is, is truly Christian is one that in good conscience can't uh, and won't want to put their children uh, in such homes that are uh, go totally against what they believe is, is moral and right. So uh, this uh, foster home, Christian foster home, was told that they're no longer going to be allowed uh, to do their ministry uh, there in, in, uh, in uh, Pennsylvania and Philadelphia to be able to, uh, to have children put into, um, it from, to be deferred to, to families through their agency from the state. And uh, we at Pacific Justice, so they filed a lawsuit that's going to the Supreme Court, and we at Pacific Justice Institute have filed an amicus front of the court brief uh, in, this, in this case matter. It's very important to religious freedom and religious uh, faith-based uh, foster care agencies and, and uh, entities. So Philadelphia is basically pulling to California, as <laughs> the saying may go, in, in terms yeah. of, you know, and, it, and it's sad because uh, so many of these kids are coming from abused uh, situations. Uh, they're coming from situations where if both parents exist, uh, there may be a drug abuse going on, other issues. The child's very life may have been in danger. So they've been taken out of the home, removed by the state. You want to put them in a, in a safe environment and an environment that can help support that child because in spite of their circumstances they're still growing physically emotionally mentally spiritually intellectually and then to turn around and say to a a large portion of potential foster parents we are not interested in you because you wish to establish uh, your faith guidelines i mean it's almost as if you're telling to a foster parent uh, you have to have two different homes one standard for your own children and then another standard based on the the whims of the child coming in i mean just it seems to be wrong at so many levels yeah it really does and it really uh effectively deprives young people of having a, a wonderful, loving Christian home, uh, not because of the young person's beliefs or the, or the homes, but rather the state beliefs, the government's beliefs, uh, to be hostile towards families with a, a Christian foundation, Christian beliefs. Uh, and that's, frankly, statistically, the best kind of a home uh, that a child could be in uh, and be raised in, uh, statistically, uh, to a faith with a strong faith foundation and beliefs uh, that that child would, would get in such a home. And uh, it's, it's really a shame because foster care agencies and the, the statistics for kids who do go to foster homes is horrific. It's, uh, it's actually that's one reason why the Department of Health and Human Services did a study finding that it's better for a child actually to remain in a moderately abusive home than to be placed in a foster home because statistically, the moderately abusive home, the children actually turn out better. Um, so these kids in foster care need every chance they can 
and to eliminate the ability for them to be in solid, committed Christian homes um, because those beliefs don't fit the, the new liberal agenda of, that, of the city of Philadelphia um, is, is outrageous. And we hope that the Supreme Court uh, will, will find the same. And, of course, if, if Amy uh, Coney Barrett is put on the Supreme Court, uh, the odds uh, for kids like this um, having such a home uh, definitely uh, go up and, in, and increase. So that's what we're hoping for. Well, we certainly appreciate the update and the work being done on behalf of these kids all throughout Philadelphia. Again, it's a scenario that we are not unfamiliar with here in California based on our own rules. And I started the conversation talking about um, Vern Tyler and Hosanna Homes. And, of course, they've had to completely um, change their entri- entire ministry model because of California's insistence uh, on these kinds of policies. And it's a shame because it means that a lot of um, Christian foster parents who would love to uh, help a child out are basically being told, we don't need you at a time when the kids need them the most. It's really shameful. Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, founder, and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Brad, appreciate the update. 545, let's get an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline well, with Greg Roberts. as we discussed Roberts. earlier in the program, um, this is a pivotal election. It is the most critical election so far in our lifetime. And I know some say, Craig, you say that every four years, and that's because they seemingly increasingly become more critical. And to be sure, while there are some obvious issues sort of top of mind in relationship to this year's election, what with the presidential race and whatnot, uh, and all that is true. Um, But at a deeper level, in our local communities, counties, the state of California, we have races for school boards. We have races for city council. We have a variety of ballot propositions, some of which are uniquely designed to try and steal things like the ability to save property taxes through the historical proposition tax uh, called Prop 13 and others. And so um, we've been promising you leading up to the election that every once in a while we would come back and revisit these issues as we move toward November the 3rd so you can vote and vote wisely. So we're going to do more of that right now. Joining me is the host of Life Matters, heard Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. here on KFAX. He is also the Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. He is Brian Johnston. Brian, always good to have you with us. Always good to be on with you, Greg. Wow, it's amazing. Uh, this year, and we talked about it before, uh, the number of attempts to try and use feel-good language to talk California taxpayers out of their money and some of the uh, nefarious activities that those additional dollars would help to support. One of them, as we talk about ballot propositions, um, is very troubling because we've had much discussion um, concerning the the morality of fetal stem cell research and what all of that means and the notion of people financially profiting off of that. And as abhorrent as the idea of Planned Parenthood, 
harvesting baby organs, uh, certainly additional government dollars, taxpayer dollars, dollars out of our family pocket to go and support more of the so-called stem cell research, which, to my understanding, thus far, it really has spent a lot of money and very produced very little results, hasn't it? That's right, Craig. And we're talking here in California about the CIRM, the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. And it came into existence back in 2004 with the ballot proposition. And that ballot proposition, it was numbered 71 at the time, but it passed with flying colors, unfortunately, because people were both ignorant, but also emotionally exploited. It was going to help Michael J. Fox be cured of Parkinson's. It was going to help Christopher Reeve walk again. And uh, the governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he thought it was very good. But you have to remember, it was put on the ballot in California for one reason, because the president of the United States, in good conscience, that was George W. Bush, he said that he could not, in good conscience, let federal funds go to embryonic research. And again, this is stem cells. Stem cells are wonderful things. You have them in your body right now. I believe in the use of stem cells. However, with embryonic stem cells, you have to end that particular individual life to get at them. They have never had any successes. Adult stem cells, many successes. So this is Proposition 14. And Proposition 14 asks for another $5.5 billion. They have already misspent all the money they had. There's been no cures. There is no government oversight. And they want more money. And uh, it's a clear no. And, and all of these propositions as we go through California Pro-Life Board went through all of these. Of the 12 propositions, there's six of them clearly impact the life issues. And we have attorneys on our board, business people, pastors, folks from across the board, and we've explained all of these. And again, we just don't want to tell you how to vote. We want you to understand because these issues won't go away. The rest of the issues we're going to talk about in propositions is the often emotional argument, well, this money is going to help children in schools. So this is really well worth it. And you'll find it in most of these ballot taxation propositions where Basically, they're exploiting the emotions of all of us care about kids and want them to get good education. I'll be, having been a teacher, I'll be honest with you, if you really want someone to get a good education, don't expect California's public schools to do it. That's not where the money's going. And in fact, all of these bonds, every school in the state is required by law under the educational code to set aside money to care for the building and the general upkeep. However, Every single one of them, because of the government unions, those funds are raided, and those monies are used for the purposes the unions would like to use them for. They simply bring it to court, and so then the schools don't have money for upkeep. And what do they do? They come and they ask the taxpayers for more. We need more, billions more. So each of the proposals that deal with the variation of taxing, that's their main goal is to emotionally exploit the voter's desire to help kids. But in point of fact, because of the structure of our, and this is our entire board agrees, uh, in many teachers, many people who have worked for school employee unions, they know what those unions are doing and do not agree with it. So 
these are very serious abuses of your tax money, and especially 14. When it comes to 14, that is, of course, the embryonic stem cell research bill. 15, of course, um, fits right in there with what you're suggesting, the idea that we're going to change taxation here in California, shift dollars around. Um, they have tried on multiple attempts to try and uh, kind of take the, the teeth, so to speak, um, out of the issue of Proposition 13. This one kind of masquerades as, well, it's not everybody. It's just commercial real estate. And I find the timing on this interesting, given the fact that we're facing uh, one of the most severe recessions, uh, certainly that we've seen in our lifetime, and to put an additional burden on small businesses, many of whom have already been forced to um, reduce staff and, and are even potentially facing the possibility of closing, and then to turn around and say, no, we're just going to take some of that money. We're going to allow them to lose their Prop 13 benefit, but we'll all put it to uh, to good use, wink, wink, um, within uh, government schools. And of course, once again, the agenda here is more about access to money and the opportunity to open the door to completely wipe out the protections of Prop 13. That's the danger of Proposition 15. That would be a recommended no vote. There's another one that goes right to the heart of schools that I want to have you address, uh, if you would, briefly, Brian, and that is Proposition 13 and uh, the cozy relationship between this proposition and Planned Parenthood. Well, uh, it starts with, I think you got the numbering off. Uh, 16, Ron. I'm sorry, 16. I said 13. Yeah. Proposition 16. Yes, exactly. So 16, again, for folks who are listening quickly, we're recommending no on most of these. And it's because the state is is not in the Democrat Party, just so you know. Um, it's not we'll pick on the Democrat Party. This is not the Democrat Party you grew up with. This is not the JFK Democrat Party. They are committed to radical ideology and using the government for implementing a radical ideology. Proposition 16 literally, literally removes the existing laws against discrimination on the basis of age, on the basis of race. Everything you think would be good to... to to have an event, they're taking that away. It would allow discrimination on the basis of race. It would allow discrimination on the basis of age on any any kind of thing you want to. The state can now start discriminating. It's incredible, but it's because the agenda has changed, and now they want to make sure. We already know, for example, at Harvard, just by way of example, that that there are many Asian kids that can't get in because they do so well. And so they can't get in because of the discrimination that's already in place. But this goes across the board. Once you start playing favorites, then then there's only bad that results. Instead of instead of judging people on the content of their character or on their achievement by basing it on their race or their age or whatever other guide you want to use. You're going to end up picking favorites and being an unjust society, even though you're calling it being just. And so this, um, this is amazing that Proposition 16 strikes down the existing, this was passed several years ago, there was a proposition that prohibited any kind of discrimination. This eviscerates it and says, oh, no, now that we control every aspect of government, we want to pick and choose the races we're going to exalt, and we're going to do it without any apologies. Now, 
all of us already know this, that in fact, this is happening already. It's just not talked about. We know that, as you point out, Planned Parenthood, they target, with state funds, they target certain communities racially. They actually target racially which kids should die, who they want to sell abortions to. And so this is just a bald-faced attempt to legitimize using race as the purpose of government. And that is on its face wrong. It's just, to me, it's stunning that it's even on there. But that's Proposition 16. And um, all of these, of course, as we've mentioned, the going through this short list, Prop 14, 15, 16, 18, 19, and 23. And we'll, I know you're saying, Craig, you're going too fast. We're going to hit all of these again uh, next week. But it is a recommended no vote on all of these across the board. Um, the the other one that I'll mention is uh, Prop 18. It wishes to drop the voting age down to 17 years old. The argument here is we want to get kids involved in the voting process a lot sooner. Uh, my argument is you have a difficult time getting 35 and 40-year-olds who have a major stake as often parents, taxpayers, in voting, and yet they often don't show up at the polls. You think a 17-year-old who's more interested in who he's dating tomorrow night or uh, the next video game that's out is now suddenly going to be interested in showing up to the polls and voting? Uh, clearly, the idea here is let's be able to influence them while they're still in government schools and in in a sense be able to then use them as tools to vote in the direction that we get. Because a parent is going to have a tough time talking about issues before a 17-year-old, but for a child in school, it's captive audience. Recommended no vote on Proposition 18. More information about not just the ballot measures, but also where the candidates stand on the issues related to life, go to CaliforniaProLife.org. That's CaliforniaProLife.org. Wonderful resources there that can help you place an informed vote as we are just three weeks today from the general election. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director of the National Right to Life Committee, host of Life Matters, where he goes into these issues in great depth every Saturday morning at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. Details online, californiaprolife.org. 602, let's get you an update on traffic. 